Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. I love you guys. Like Tom said, uh, my name's Eric. I'm going to be I'm, I'm one of your pastors, and uh, I'm going to be preaching today. Uh, out of our series called Reset, and we've been basically talking through, in light of the crazy last year and a half that we've all been through, who do we want to be as a church? What are we going to give ourselves to? What are we going to devote ourselves to? And as part of this, we've been working through our values. And today, I get the privilege of kind of preaching on probably my favorite thing to preach on in the world. So I'm excited to share this with you. Um, before I do, I want to tell you a quick story uh, to kind of set up our time. I, back in 2019, uh, my abuela, my grandma in Puerto Rico, I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico, uh, got really sick. She was 97 and she got pneumonia. So I got the call from my mom and my mom basically told me like, hey, your grandma's not doing well. You're going to probably want to come as soon as you possibly can to come and visit her. So I did. Um, within a couple of days, I was on a plane and on my way back to Puerto Rico to my hometown. My hometown in Puerto Rico, San Juan's like the major city. It's probably the one that you maybe have heard of. They do a lot of cruises out of there. Some of you have maybe even been there before. Uh, I'm not from there. I'm from Nazareth, the other side of Puerto Rico, the, uh, the small kind of farmy rural uh, area. And uh, it's called Mayaguez, and it's about three hours away from San Juan driving. And so the thing to remember, I guess, is that back in 2017, Hurricane Maria hit and just basically destroyed our island. And it destroyed roads, it destroyed so much infrastructure that even two years later, it was hard to drive across the island. So I did it once, and it was like, oh my gosh, it's like three or four lane roads down to one lane, so it just takes forever to get across. So I ended up finding out, discovering that there was a little airline that started flying across the island to my hometown. It's a little airport that I thought was abandoned, looks like it, but it's not. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'll book a flight. Sure, great. My dad used to do that when I was a kid, so I have a lot of memories of going back to that little airport and taking my dad and dropping him off at the airport so he would fly to San Juan and then fly to the States before we moved here. So it's kind of like I got to do the, the reverse. And so I fly into San Juan one day, and, uh, and it was like Cape Air this way. And I was like, oh, where's, like we're in the nice you know, terminal. And it's sort of like go down the flight of stairs, and, uh, and then it feels like you're going back in time 30 years. So there's like the updated terminal in San Juan, and then there's like the uh, old terminal in San Juan, from, like the original. And so we're like, oh, this is, this is not so nice. Um, that's fine. No big deal. And then they're like, all right, follow me. And so they grab me and, a few, and like eight other people, and they walk us onto the tarmac. And I'm like, where are we going? You can hear like the 737s in the background. It's loud. It's noisy. And then they kind of cut us through the airport. And then here we are, a fleet of little Cessnas, uh, 402s, if you're familiar with them. They're tiny. They fit eight to 10 people. And they're like, you're getting on that. And if you don't know, Puerto Rico has gnarly weather. So when you're flying on a little plane like that, you feel everything. You feel every bump. You feel all the rain, because it rains, it hails, it's real bad. And so I was like, okay, 
I guess, getting on this thing. And I looked at it. It almost looked like the thought I had was like, I wonder if they're going to have to like crank it like a lawnmower to get this thing going. It's so tiny. Everything just looks out of place. It looks like we're not going to make it. Um, And so I get on this plane and I start looking out the window and I look up and there's two pilots and I can see them. There's, there's no cockpit. There's complete visibility into the, everything that's going on is right in front of me. And so I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And it becomes very clear right away that one of these dudes looks like he's never done this before. And he looks like he's 21. So I look, I feel like I'm, I'm, I could be his dad almost, not depending, whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is disconcerting. And so he does the safety briefing. There's no flight attendants. There's no room. So it's like they're doing everything. They're literally they're welcoming us on the plane. They're loading our luggage, which, like, which was like, hey, we cracked open the engine, and there's a little bit of room for luggage right there. And then we closed it. And so we got our luggage on the plane. And uh, I think everyone was nervous. And the lady in front of me, I think she just started talking. She just got real nervous, so she just wanted to talk. Uh, when, once they fired up those engines, uh, she just like, couldn't stop talking. And she kept wanting to talk to the pilot, and the pilot's like kind of just brushing her off, and so she just keeps going. And normally when you're taxiing, you know, like you pause, you stop, you wait for cross traffic. These pilots were like, we're going. So they, didn't, they never stopped. I just kept expecting them to like pause and kind of like fix stuff up or at least radio and say, hey, we're going. It just kind of felt like they saw an opening. They're like, we're going, and they just took off. And I think a part of it was just to shut this lady up so she wouldn't stop talking. So they pushed the throttle in, and we're like, whoa, like this isn't a lawnmower. This is real. This is a legit plane. A lot of horsepower. And, uh, and then we take off. And it's, I don't know if you have, it's kind of like that sensation, like you're on a roller coaster, like, oh, like you're about to go over Splash Mountain or whatever. And so it's like we take off, and I just see everything. I see the beaches for miles. I see the lush mountains in the background. I see my island. And I'm just like, my jaw like hit the floor. I was totally wrapped up in awe and wonder at like how incredible this place is. What you have to keep in mind is Hurricane Maria destroyed the, the island. This, was an, this is an island in crisis. And so it brought up a lot of emotions, brought up a lot of things. One of the things it did, because I'm an Enneagram 5 for any of the Enneagram fans in the room, uh, which means I investigate everything, is that I, like, I investigated this company. It's like, who is this Cape Air? Where did they come from? Because they, they, there was nobody flying into and out of my little hometown, or so I thought. And all of a sudden, there's like this, this airline. And so I did some research. And it turns out that Cape Air, it grew from, it started off with one or two airplanes in Boston, now, did anybody ever watch the show Wings when you were kids? I'm like dating myself a little bit. There's a few of us in the room who are courageous. It was back in the 80s or 90s, the show about like, little air, like a little tiny airplane, a little tiny airline that flew little flights in, you know, in the East Coast. That's Cape Air, essentially. So they started with one route from Boston. They started with eight employees. And early on, they had 8,000 passengers, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. It's a very, very small operation. Uh, the pilots were doing everything. They just had a couple of, of support staff. And now, today, somehow, they're in Puerto Rico, on my island. Their capacity went from 8,000 passengers to half a million passengers a year. And now they are all over the world, even up to Micronesia. And as I was thinking about it, it hit me 
Cape Air grew from this tiny little airline that almost you, would, you could blink and not see it to they're now everywhere. And as I was thinking about how they did it, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit more later, I realized this is incredibly similar to how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, actually goes out and spreads into the world. How was it that there was a small little movement in the Middle East that now has spread to the entire world? Not fully, but it is spreading into every nation. Cape Air figured that out. I'm going to tell you about it later. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because we have a commission as the church. And it's Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. I think they'll be up on the the screen. This is what Jesus, after he he died and was raised again, this is what he left the church. He said, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So he doesn't want just converts. He wants people who obey him. And remember, I am always with you to the end of the age. So he's promised his personal, personal presence with us. What's my point? The church is meant to grow and to spread everywhere. Everywhere. So the good news about Jesus saturates the whole earth. That's what we're going to talk about today. How does that actually happen? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into things. Uh, Father, I want to thank you that you are rich in mercy. I want to thank you that because of your great love for us, you made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. Thank you that we're saved by grace through faith, and that this is not of ourselves, but it's your gift to us, so that none of us can boast. Thank you that we are your workmanship. We're your masterpiece and that you made us new in Jesus so that we could do good things planned for us long ago. I pray that you would lead us joyfully into the good that you've planned for us, and that you would be pleased to use this time, this morning, this message, however you'd like to see that happen. I pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so today, quick overview. We're going to talk about the spread and the growth of the good news about Jesus. How do we see that happening in the scriptures? And then how do we want to see that happening here in Restored Temecula? So to do that, there's so many ways you could do that, uh, looking at the scriptures. And I just decided we're just going to look at the Apostle Paul today. I'm going to look at the Apostle Paul and his strategy to actually spread the good news. So I think in terms of FAQs, frequently asked questions. So I structured the message. I'm just going to ask myself questions and answer them. And you guys can listen in. (laughs) So who is the Apostle Paul? I don't want to assume that everybody knows who the Apostle Paul is. The Apostle Paul was actually... He was a first century, he lived in the first century, and he was a zealous Jewish man who, by his own admission, he was super intense, and he was super intense about persecuting the church of Jesus in the first century. And he says, I tried to destroy it. That's who the Apostle Paul was. And then one day he got marching orders, and those marching orders were really simple go round up a bunch of Christians, try them, and see if you can execute a few. And he was like, I'm into that. That's Paul, Saul, I should say. And then we get the story in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. It says this, As he, Paul, was traveling, he was nearing Damascus. A light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up 
and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So the men who were, he wasn't alone when this happened. This didn't happen in a corner, like this happened in front of people. The people that were there were like, are you kidding? They're just like speechless. They heard the sounds, but they didn't see anybody. And so Saul got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he was blind. He couldn't see a thing. And so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus, and he couldn't see for three days, and then he didn't eat or drink. What happened to Paul? What was Jesus doing? He was actually calling Paul to be one of his chief lieutenants. Acts 9, verses 15 to 16. Jesus talks to a Christian. He's like, go pray for Paul. And the Christian's like, no way. Do you know who Paul is? Do you know what he does? He rounds up Christians and kills them. And this is Jesus' response, classic Jesus. Acts 9, 15 to 16. The Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So the man who inflicted suffering and pain on Christians is now going to suffer pain for the sake of others so that they might experience the beauty and the wonder of King Jesus. Listen to Paul's own reflections on this. Listen to how this impacted him. Think about last week when Maria was like, hey, those who are cleansed are commissioned. For those of you guys who are here, listen to this. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 16. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who we're going to talk a lot about today. He says this, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. So here's a proud man who's been humbled. How? I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Sort of like, if Jesus can save this guy... He can do whatever he wants. He can save anybody. He can work through anybody. And so what happened to Paul? He ministered. He, he fulfilled his calling, which we're going to talk about, with a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude. Because Jesus chose him. Even Paul. Saul was his name before it changed to Paul. His life and ministry were built on grace. And that's what motivated Paul to do extraordinary things. Grace is the foundation for any legitimate ministry. It's awe, it's wonder, it's gratitude. So how did Paul fulfill Jesus' calling on his life? Jesus kind of knocked him off his horse and was like, I got stuff for you to do. What did Paul do? Very simple. And also very complex in terms of how it actually worked out. He proclaimed the good news that Jesus is king and people responded. He just went around preaching. He went around saying, Jesus is king. He's our forgiving king who sits on the throne of grace. Look at how he's loved you. Now, go and do likewise. And he's going to help you as you do that. Be forgiven. Go and be a forgiving, loving, generous, wonderful people in this world, just like Jesus is. And so what would happen? People would want to trust Jesus and grow as disciples. Some people wanted to kill him. So there's that too. Uh, it was a complex story. 
But Paul would, you know, he would go into places, he'd go into a city, he would preach, he would make tents so, so that he could have income at times. Sometimes he received support from churches. He would preach and then he would gather people. People would gather under his preaching. A lot of times into house churches. So kind of like gospel communities. That's what he did. And he would strengthen and encourage disciples and then he would go often to other places and start over. So you see how this works? He goes and preaches, makes disciples, goes and starts over. But he'd stay in contact with people, with those churches. He would write for them. He, he would pray for them. Then he would write to them. That's why we have so many of his letters in the New Testament, because he stayed in contact. He would write to them, and he would practically help them. And here's, the, here's a key part of his strategy that he used that we're going to talk about today. So the real focus of the message is that Paul was committed to multiplication. Paul was committed to multiplication. He knew, I can't spread this, I can't fulfill this great commission on my own. I cannot do it. So he needed to multiply disciples, and he needed to multiply leaders who would partner with him in this great gospel adventure to see the unstoppable spread of Jesus' love so that Jesus would reclaim the nations and be, would be king over the entire world. So, as a church, we value multiplication. We value multiplication for the same exact reason. We can't fulfill the great commission and we can't see people encounter the radical love of Jesus without multiplying disciples and leaders. We just can't do it. So that begs the question, how did he do it? How did Paul actually raise up and develop coworkers in the faith? And we're just going to use Timothy as one. Because we want to do this regularly here. We want to see people raised up and developed in the faith. So if you're taking notes, here come my points. First one. Paul identified Timothy's potential. Paul identified Timothy's potential. So Timothy, who is he? He's a guy who probably became a Christian during one of Paul's visits. So he's actually hearing Paul preach. He's actually hearing about this good news about Jesus. And he responds. And he becomes a disciple. And so this is what happened when Paul went back to visit Timothy in Lystra. This is out of Acts 16, verse 1. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra. I love this. This is recorded in the Bible for us. There was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. More on that in a moment, why that matters, and why that's painful for Timothy. Uh, the brothers and sisters at, Ly at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. So he was clearly somebody with a good reputation in the community. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So Paul's traveling around the ancient world. He's doing all this stuff, and he's like, I want that guy to come with me. I'm going to take him. And Paul wanted him to go, so he took him and circumcised him as an adult. Yeah, I told you it was painful. His father was a Greek. His mother was a Jewish woman. So most likely what happened is dad's like, do not do that to my kid. And so he wasn't circumcised. Circumcision, I can't get into all of it, but it was a sign. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. It's also very painful. Have you ever... Baby boys. <clears throat> so, <laughs> off track. As they traveled through towns, they delivered the decisions, the, the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem for the people to observe. So there was practical teaching and instruction that was given to the churches. And so Timothy was a part of the crew that went and shared this, this incredible good news with people. And the churches, and I, I, verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Paul saw great potential in Timothy. Great potential. Timothy was growing. Okay, he had a solid biblical foundation because his mom was Jewish. 
And his grandma, actually Paul names his grandmother and his mother as women who imparted an important part of Timothy's foundation to him so that he could become this kind of a leader that he, he became. They raised him on the scriptures, long story short. So don't ever downplay the work that you're doing, moms and dads, grandparents, spiritual aunties and uncles, the work that you do with these kids is a part of the multiplication story. So when given the chance, Timothy did not hesitate, even if it meant circumcision. He joined Paul and Silas on their journey. And the reason they did that to him wasn't because they're cruel. It's because it would cause problems if they're going to minister to Jewish people. If he's not circumcised, he's going to have problems. So Timothy was like, all right, do what you got to do. And then later on with Titus, who's another one of Paul's protégés, it was like, don't circumcise that guy. He's a Gentile. So this is not a part of the deal. For those of you who are new, circumcision is not required. End of tangent. Um, but my, what's my point? Timothy was a, a loving guy. Like, he did that for love's sake. He didn't have to do that. The second, he, the, second the C word came out, circumcision, he could have been like, I'm out. No thanks. Not doing that. He was a remarkable young man. So he saw great potential, Paul did, in Timothy, and he invited him to experience being part of fruitful ministry. But it didn't end there. Second point, Paul gave Timothy important responsibility. Paul gave Timothy legit things to do that were really important. Paul demonstrated his confidence in young Timothy by entrusting him with important responsibilities. Get this, what, what do you guys think is the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament? As you've read it, Corinth, very good. Corinth was rough. Uh, nothing we've ever faced in our churches compares to Corinth. There was, let's just say that Paul, very loving, very kind, very caring man who went to Corinth, lived there for a year and a half, dedicated his life to Corinth for a long time, got to know people, told them the good news about King Jesus. Many became disciples there. Paul helped to see this community form in Corinth. And then he went on to start other churches. And then he gets these reports back like, hey, dude, there's major problems in Corinth, big ones. Uh, there's disunity. People are like gang, like gathering around like certain personalities and like putting each other down because like, we're better. There's arrogance. Um, there's crazy sexual immorality going on in this church. Their gatherings were a hot mess. People were talking over each other. It was just disorderly and chaotic. And there was more. And that was the church that Paul planted, by the way. Crazy. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address these problems. So we have the letter of 1 Corinthians for that reason. But he didn't just do that. You, probably, you maybe have read 1 Corinthians before, but you've probably not noticed this. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, says this. Therefore, I, this is Paul telling the Corinthians, I urge you to imitate me. Which is cool, because he's like, follow my example. And it's great. Verse 17. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. Paul sent Timothy into this mess, into this dumpster fire. He's my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in the church. Paul didn't, and by the way, I didn't, probably wasn't the best thing to say dumpster fire, because you probably all think of 2020 and all the, everything that, just everything that's wrong and broken in the world and terrible. Paul didn't do that because he wanted to punish Timothy. He did that because he loved the Corinthian church so much. He didn't want to see them stay in this space of dis, 
unity and dysfunction. He like loved that church and he sent Timothy. And he's like, I'm not, try- I'm not gonna try to do this all on my own. I'm gonna give Timothy responsibility so he can play a part. He wasn't a spectator. Like he was put in the starting lineup. And there was trust. I think it's important to note, like there was trust both ways. Like Paul trusted Timothy and gave him important stuff to do. Timothy trusted Paul. It was a, a both and kind of relationship. Okay, third thing. Paul allowed Timothy to struggle and he supported him in it. And this is really important. Paul allowed Timothy to struggle and he supported him in it. So perhaps not surprisingly, how do you think it went at Corinth for Timothy? Not well. Not well. Timothy, as best we can tell, was apparently ineffective in that difficult mission to Corinth. But did Paul give up on him? No. No. Timothy kept traveling with Paul and acted as a representative of Paul at Ephesus, which is why we have first and second Timothy. Timothy was at Ephesus. And Paul was writing to strengthen that church and to strengthen Timothy. So he, he, he went to Ephesus. He did the, the tour of duty at Corinth, which was apparently a bust. Uh, he went to Thessalonica. He went to Philippi. Timothy was sent all over the place. And his name, by the way, this is just fun trivia. He shows up in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and even Hebrews. Timothy is everywhere in the New Testament. And Hebrews wasn't even written by Paul. So obviously he was connected to other, other Christian leaders. This wasn't like an exclusive thing with Paul. Like This was a family seeking to reclaim the nations for Jesus, working together to do that. Timothy didn't get cut because he struggled. He wasn't sidelined. He wasn't shelved. He was given responsibility. He was allowed to struggle, and he was supported through it. And then he got sent. Okay, go again. All right, go again. All right, I'm sending you again. I'm sending you again. Why? As you read the story of Timothy, it was clear that there was calling on his life. This isn't just random. It's, like it, it's not just that we're just, he was like constantly being set up to fail. There was calling on his life. God had clearly called him to do this work. And he had the character to actually walk it out. So he was someone who was built up, developed, and trained. Someone who could multiply. Someone who could spread good news. That was Timothy. One last thing I want to mention really quickly. For my fourth point. Paul frequently honored Timothy. Paul frequently honored Timothy. If you read those letters that Paul writes to Timothy, he, the language is almost embarrassing. My dearly loved son... Timothy, there's nobody like him. Nobody like Timothy, who will genuinely care for your interests. Everybody else seeks their own interest. Kind of prickly, Paul. But he's like, everyone else is just, that you're dealing with is just kind of like self-focused and just kind of using their platform. But not Timothy. You know his character. He served with me in the gospel like a son with a father. I'm going to send him to you. In other words, Paul knows that Timothy's going to be a gift to anyone who receives him. And Timothy, he had weaknesses. Uh, he was young. So not that he was immature or unqualified. He was just young. And sometimes age can be, dis- you know, sometimes you get dismissed if you're young. Um, he had frequent stomach issues. He had a, like a bit of a tender tummy. And he wasn't like a picture of, of robust health. So there's reasons. If you're really looking for reasons, you could just be like, he's too young and he's sort of a wimp. And Paul's like, this guy's a giant, spiritually. Shut up and listen. This guy, what Paul's like, 
in a loving way. He's, he's, he's commending Timothy. So Paul frequently honored and commended Timothy. And what disciple? If you've been around, like how many times have you needed somebody to just affirm the work of God in your life? Like what an impact that has. If you're taking a risk to trust and obey Jesus, what happens? There is attack, pushback. There is a kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Jesus is spreading, and the kingdom of darkness is pushing back. Anyone who tries to, make, to just take a little bit, like what Heidi did today, just opening your mouth in front of people, there's going to be significant and serious pushback. Imagine like going to strengthen churches or going to plant churches. Crazy pushback. So Paul constantly affirmed Timothy. And the last thing, Paul called Timothy to multiply. I'm just going to read this real quick, and then we're going to get into some examples and specifics. But Paul called Timothy to multiply. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. What, you what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul didn't just want to raise up and develop Timothy, but he wanted Timothy to raise up and develop leaders who would do the same thing. So that way there's this ongoing chain of disciples being made and then leaders being raised up so that this unstoppable spread of Jesus' love can continue on and on and on. So, quickly, Paul identified his potential. He gave him responsibility. He allowed him to struggle and supported him through it. And he encouraged the mess out of Timothy. And he's like, go and do that for other people. What was the impact of all this multiplication, of the multiplication? Guess what? It starts really small. Like, really, really small. You might not even see it. It's sort of like one unimpressive plane. One route from Boston to like a little neighborhood, neighboring city that you wouldn't, you've probably never heard of. Two pilots in the cockpit. It looks like one very young pilot who may not know what he's doing. Hungry pilots who want to fly. It looks like flying with two pilots when you can technically fly with one. And you only need to pay one. Why would you do that? Because those flights aren't just about providing a service, but they're about developing pilots along the way. Think about this stuff. God's going to give you understanding into what I'm saying. These flights, they're not just about developing pilots. They're not just about providing a service. They're about developing pilots along the way. It looks like younger faces in the cockpit than what you're used to. A lot of times in that right-hand seat as a first officer, but sometimes in the captain's seat flying solo. Scary. It looks like training and opportunities, hands-on experiences. It looks like flying without autopilot a lot and feeling every little bit of wind in every raindrop because you're flying in tough conditions. It looks like flying not with the latest and the greatest airplane, but with a Cessna 402 from 1986. They're modest, but they're reliable. They get the job done. Again, because it's not about latest and greatest. It's about developing pilots. That's how you go from flying from Boston to a neighboring community in 1989, that's all you got, to half a million passengers and 35 cities and nations, including my little hometown that would otherwise go completely 
unreached. It doesn't happen without multiplication. It looks like they're not being a cockpit door. So there's visibility into what's happening. It looks like pilots handling their own announcements and operating without, without flight attendants, getting lots of face time with people. It looks like a relational culture and not a competitive one. Because everyone knows in the, air, in the airline industry, there is a major shortage of pilots. Major, massive problems with filling, actually filling, uh, filling the, uh, the, pilot, the pilot need. It's a learning environment where there's access to captains. It looks like pilots who are like trusted to make decisions and they get to fly fast and early. I'll quote one Cape Air pilot, unless I can make decisions, I can't grow as a pilot. And they're receiving support. There's responsibility, there's trust, there's support. But there's more. This isn't just about young bucks that want to develop. And it's not just about Cape Air filling their airline. Do you know what they do? They actually have it in their culture that people, the pilots who become captains, are going to go. And they're totally cool with it. And in fact, if you've ever, who's flown JetBlue here in the last like 10 years? A few of you guys. There's a good chance that your pilot started with Cape Air because they are a pipeline for JetBlue. Cape Air is not trying to hold on to these men and women. They're developing them and they're giving them lots of experience. And there's a commitment. It's like, yeah, you have a two-year tour of duty with us here at Cape Air, but you're going to become one incredible pilot as you learn to fly through the skies of all sorts of places around the world where there's really bad weather, difficult conditions, and so on. It means we're going to fly. I said this earlier, but we're going to fly with two people, two pilots, when we only need one because it's not about just providing a service. It's about developing pilots along the way. There's 66 Cape Air captains sitting in JetBlue cockpits right now that have been developed. And Cape Air is not like, oh, man, we lost all those people. They celebrate it. It's a part of, like, their culture. They love it. And you know what's happened? Listen to this. I'll just, real quick. They, they've got a partnership with uh, JetBlue, and now they have a partnership with Spirit. And Spirit Air, they've actually said that Cape Air has helped solve our recruitment problems. They've helped to ma- us to maintain a skilled and robust pilot workforce for years to come. Keep in mind, there's a horrible shortage of pilots. COVID alleviated it for a little bit. We're going to be back there again soon. Multiplication leads to abundance that meets needs. Multiplication is a long-term strategy that provides insane returns on investment. And I love this. I'll just last thing about I can go on about airlines forever. But you know what they do too? It's not just about the young bucks. They also, they'll bring in people who can no longer fly the 737s and the bigger planes, and they'll bring them back because you could fly a Cessna. And so it's sort of like, come on back. We want you back. Um, and what they get out of it is, you know, the, the veterans can fly as much or as little as they want, but it, they said it helps us in terms of mentorship of our young pilots. It's a mentorship culture. And here's the thing. It's not just about flying. It's about developing pilots along the way. Multiplication, not hierarchies, not control, not competition. 
It's not about those things. It's about development, investment, laying a good foundation for flourishing in the future. This is my story. I am not here if it wasn't for multiplication. When I was 20, a few years ago, 10 years ago, uh, I jumped in, my wife and I jumped in with Restored Uptown. If you were new, this is Restored Temecula, welcome. We are the fourth church plant. It started with Restored Uptown, which then became LA, South Bay, and now we're here in Temecula. But we were there for the first one. Several, many of us actually were. And what happened was Andy Rogers, who's the lead pastor there, Brad Sarian, who was an elder in Uptown, was an elder at Uptown, he's now the lead pastor uh, over in LA, and Tom and others, they identified potential in me. And I, it was through time and conversation. And they knew like, oh man, I feel like, I, I feel like God may be calling me to, to do this, to, to vocational full-time ministry. And so they gave me important responsibility. Uh, I started with an offering talk. There was like 12 people in the room. And Andy was like, all right, why don't you set up the offering time? Read, read a couple of scriptures and then, um, what's the word? Pontificate, I guess. Just share a couple things with the people. And I was like, it was the most exciting thing that I feel like I'd ever done to that time. So they gave me two minutes. I probably went seven. And... <laughs> But man, I preached my little heart out at that point, and I was just so, so excited and so happy to get to do that. And that was the beginning. That's how it started. And it was sort of like this faithfulness with very small things led to bigger things. He was faithful with little things and be entrusted with much. So first it was an offering talk. Uh, then I became an apprentice. We became apprentices in a gospel community. So we were learning, observing, watching, helping to provide leadership to a gospel community. Uh, then it was Multiplication Sunday, which I think happened within, I don't know, just a few months of the church even actually opening its doors for, for Sunday gatherings. I got to preach a message in front of everybody uh, for the first time. And I got to preach my first message. It wasn't there that I preached it for the first time. It was in a little living room with just a few people with like a... Um, an ironing board. I think Tom was there with my, whatever, my laptop. And I just gave a talk and I got feedback and I got encouragement. Um, I was actually told, and this is not a, a, a boast thing because I'm going to talk later about my deep struggles, but Andy was like, that's the best first message I've ever heard. Andy didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go out of his way to encourage me. He could have like, there was like probably 400 things that were not great about that message. But I do remember that because it just put wind into my sails to keep going, to keep trying, to not give up. Because, yeah, things, things happen, insecurities, all the stuff that everybody deals with. I got to preach my first message. Um, I served faithfully and anonymously for a long time in ministries until there was like a need for someone to like oversee and lead a ministry. And I got to do that. I got to do that with kids' ministry. Um, I was allowed to struggle, and I was supported through it. So talking about preaching my first message, uh, I preached many that weren't so good, and I really struggled through that. And I actually, um, there was one time specifically I remember where 
this was probably within the first year or so of, um, of being appointed as an elder and getting to do this full-time where I felt like I'm not sure if I can preach and I'm not sure if I can lead a ministry. There was so much uh, pushback and opposition to what I was doing, uh, spiritually speaking, and then also there were people in the church. I think people who didn't, didn't mean it, but they were undermining, like significantly, without talking to me, they were just talking to each other about stuff. And so it was really, really hard. So I dealt with dissatisfaction, misunderstanding, struggles, being criticized, and somewhat unfairly, and then also somewhat fairly, because I was learning on the job. Um, and I remember in that moment, I was struggling really badly and feeling like a failure, and I was like reaffirmed with love, like God's with you, keep going, and I'm going to help you practically. That's what, that's what the church did for me. That's what the leaders did for me. I got to start over. I got to relaunch a ministry that was dying. And I heard it again. Dude, that was the best training we've ever done for kids' ministry. And then it was also like, and here's how we can keep growing. But it was bathed in such deep love and affection that I could receive constructive criticism without being wounded because I was so deeply loved and so deeply believed in. It was incredible. It was healing. Uh, I remember once having like a really rough Sunday. And it was, again, there's spiritual pushback and there's my own insecurities and fears. All that conspires. And I remember waking up the next morning. I was like, I don't know if I could do this. And I feel like Jesus met me in it. And he was like, I'm not giving up. Don't you quit either. And within 10 minutes, Tom texts me. And he's like, you want to preach in South Africa? After I had, I had a really rough Sunday. And I was like, ah, the last thing I want is a mic in my hand right now. But I should probably do this. Because I think this is Jesus. And you know what happened? I went down to South Africa. I prepped the night before. I thought I was like, I'm going to get this done on the plane. I don't write on planes. It's painful. It's, it's, I get dizzy. It didn't, didn't work. So at the last minute, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this message. I'm going to share my story in front of what I thought was like 20 people, 20 girls at like an all-girls school. I end up walking in. It's like 7 o'clock in the morning, teenage girls who do not want to be there, seemingly most of them. And instead of 20 or 30, it was 500 so I, I message our GC and I'm like, please pray. Because it's probably like 9 o'clock here, 9 p.m. West Coast, it's like 7 o'clock in the morning, South Africa time. Long story short, by the time I'm done, they're like borderline standing ovation. I'm not making this up. Uh, and I, get, I got off the stage and I was like, oh, man, that's a great, great crowd to preach to. And all of the locals were like, no, it's not. It's the worst crowd to preach to. Jay was there and Tom were there. I mean, it. I wouldn't believe it if there weren't witnesses, to be honest, because I was in such a rough place. But God was committed to me, and people were committed to me, and I kept going. I was honored publicly, and I've been honored. I can't even get into all of it. I've been honored publicly and privately um, everywhere. We were sent off to go and help start this community from Uptown. Uptown sent out Brad, Danny, Tom, and myself, four pastors from Restored Uptown, who, if Danny and Andy and Tom and Brad had decided, they could have built a big thing in Uptown because they're so gifted. Um, but that's not multiplication. But when we multiply, this is what happens. 
this is what you get to experience. You get to actually have churches all over the place with leaders like me who are developing, who are growing, who are getting time in the cockpit very early. Lastly, one of the great gifts that I get now is that I get to invest in other people's multiplication. That's one of the greatest joys that I get. I get to work with GC leaders and raise them up. I get to work with, uh, I get to help develop preachers. Uh, One day here we'll develop elders and we'll multiply elders. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I actually realize that I enjoy that more. Um, I had more fun like walking with Andrea through her preach than doing this. Like it's just more satisfying. And I want to get very quickly, very practical. What does it look like for us as a church to become a, we are a multiplying church. Can I just say that? We started with one GC. We're up to five in just a few years. I mean, that's crazy growth. So this is happening. Well done, church. We're doing this. We get to keep doing this. For moms and dads, spiritual mothers and fathers, grandparents in the room, remember Timothy, Lois, And Eunice, grandma and mom, instilled the scriptures into Timothy from a young age. So they were critical. Even though they maybe never left their city, they were critical in seeing the gospel go out because of what they invested and deposited into their children. It's not just reading a Bible story before going to bed. It's not, or whatever. It's so much more. So this is super important. Um, When you're serving in kids, you are investing in the next generation. It's not just babysitting. Like You are are developing relationships and helping kids to see the gospel that they themselves will one day take into the world. Um, We want to plant churches. So today is Give Love. I'm going to let Tom handle the bulk of that. He's going to explain it. But you can give financially. You can support this work. We're sending Maria to Southeast Asia, or to South Asia. And here's the thing. It starts small. It starts with one. And it can become many. That's the story of multiplication. And lastly, like, give generously to the local church. Like, this is what we want to all be about. We want to be about multiplication. So with Cape Air, one of the things that you'll notice, which is really interesting, especially in Puerto Rico, is the planes are very modest. The accommodations are modest at best um, because they're spending their money to multiply. Like, they're not going to blow you away with fancy. With fancy. Um, they make decisions strategically to keep growing and keep developing. Again, they can fly with one pilot. They often fly with two. That costs money. Why? Because they want to develop pilots. In the same way, like, this is a local church. We meet in schools strategically for a reason. They're a lot cheaper to meet in. So we can invest in multiplication. Now, if the opportunity comes up for us to actually meet and buy a building or do that, we're, we're certainly open to that. But again, we're not going to prioritize buildings over multiplication. We're going to prioritize multiplication. And then if God so chooses to give us a building, great. We'll take it. I'm going to call Tom up here in a second, but I just want to ask the question, what would it look like if we fully bought into multiplication? If we fully bought in. Could you imagine the impact for our children if we have 100 Timothys back there? It could change the world in a generation. I actually did some math. I'm not good at it, but Excel helped. We could see the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime, for most of us. By the time I'm 70, the, the, the nations could be discipled 
if it's just one int- person being intentionally discipled at a time. I can't show you the math. I'm not even sure how I do that, but it's on Excel. I can show you later if you want. <laughs> Crazy what can happen with, could you imagine Jesus returning in our lifetime? I'm not making an end times prophecy, by the way. I'm just saying, if the, if the nations are discipled, come on back. We're ready for you, you know? So I'll just finish with this thought. When we were on that plane in 2019 uh, with those two pilots, there was a training pilot and there was a trainee pilot. And I got to fly over my, um, my country where I grew up. And it brought up, and my grandma was dying, so there was a lot of, this is a hard moment. And I got to see my nation, which went through a terrible hurricane, a financial collapse, depression, you can even call it, um, feeling kind of isolated from the world, all these different things. I got to see that all from a different perspective. As these two pilots like worked out their plan, I saw my nation from a completely different vantage point. I saw the beauty of it. I saw the brokenness of it. I got to see it from God's perspective, as it were. And it was deeply moving. It's still my favorite flight I've ever taken. It was only 25 minutes long. And what I realized as I was thinking about this is multiplication, it's not just for the pilots, it's for the people who are on the plane as well. As multiplication is happening, as your GC leaders are being multiplied and raised up, as there's preachers being multiplied and raised up, as there's church planters and elders being multiplied and raised up, you're going to get like a panorama, a vista of your own life, of the gospel, of the brokenness and the beauty in your life and in your world that's going to deeply affect you. The purpose of it is so that we would know Jesus, know his story, and know his grace for us. That happens as multiplication happens. We soar together and we heal. So this is hugely important. The reason why I really wanted to preach this message is because this is for everybody to enjoy. And we can back this movement with our finances, with our time, with our words to each other, with our resources. And we're going to get a very specific way to do that right now. I'm going to call Tom up. And we're going to give love, which is a way to invest in multiplication that's not even going to directly benefit us, but it will serve the great commission that we've been called to. Love you, church.